Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Patrick Gould, the Deputy Director of the Cyber Portfolio at the Defense Innovation Unit. Patrick, welcome to the discussion. Hi, Jason. Thanks for having me. There's a lot going on within DIU around cybersecurity. There's always something new going on, but we're going to start at a, on a, about a recent OTA, Other Transaction Agreement, for Cyber Detection and Threat Intelligence Capabilities. Start there. What was that OTA for? What was your goals behind it? This is actually a, a really exciting project. So one of the operational cyber teams from, from the Cyber Mission Force came to us looking for a cyberspace deception technology to go one step further than what we're used to seeing in the commercial world when using deception. So typically in the commercial world, deception is used for detect and respond. So it's essentially a way to deploy fake artifacts, fake decoys, uh, fake machines, honeypots, honey nets, honey tokens, all these different fake pieces of, of computing infrastructure throughout an environment as a way to try to see is anyone interacting with those fake artifacts. And then from there, can a security operations team determine who is that adversary that's interacting with those? What type of malicious activity is being, is being interacted with those? Is it insider threat? Is it external threat? And then from there, can you identify how to best defend against that? What we were looking to do and what the, the customer on our end was looking to do was to take that one step further and try to figure out, can we not just detect and respond to that threat, but can we start to ratchet up the deception to start toying with an adversary? Can we deploy this around a weapon system for the purposes of protection and intelligence gathering? Um, can we really play off of the paranoia that most offensive cyber operators have in a way that makes them wonder and question every, every move they're making as to are they being watched? Is this a real environment? Is this a real weapon system? Is this a real government network? All right, pretty interesting stuff. When you put out an OTA, you must do a little bit of market research to see, okay, does this even exist? Or is that the whole point of the OTA is, okay, give us your best, whatever it is, and then we can decide if it exists or not. Sometimes it's a little bit of both, I know. The majority of DIU projects are, are demand-driven. So we start with a, a government hard problem. In our case, it's usually a DOD operator hard problem. In the case of, of some of our more recent ones in the cyber portfolio, uh, they're coming from the cyber mission force or the service cyber components or some sort of cyber performing entity at a COCOM. So they'll come to us with a problem set and, and they'll kind of work with us to figure out, okay, what is the actual problem? And then we'll do some work with our market research folks and our connections in the ecosystems that we're in. So uh, we have offices in Silicon Valley, we have offices in Boston, we have offices in Austin, but we're not precluded to only work in those areas. We'll go worldwide, but most of our connections are in those areas. So from there, we, we do the market research to try to figure out, hey, is there a commercial, a great commercial technology that either already solves that problem or is solves 80% of that problem and can be minimally modified to then be applied to that government problem set that came to us. So it sounds to me like it's rarely you're just throwing some spaghetti against the wall and hopefully it sticks. You know that there's already some spaghetti against the wall sticking and you just right if it's the right spaghetti. <laughs> right. Yeah. And it, we know that. And what makes us unique is that we know there's a lot of problems that we share with commercial industries. So there's not a lot of unique problems for for government when it comes to cyber operations anymore. And so we're going out there and we're looking for, hey, who's already solved this? Who's already done the R&D? What are the world's best products? And how do we become a good customer to the companies that are creating these products rather than trying to redevelop them on our own under formal government program offices or weapon system built 
So you put the OTA out. Can you walk me through some of the results? Did you get a lot of interest? Did you know that there's at least you know three to five to seven companies available that that may be interested or has this type of technology? Walk me through what what, what came from the OTA. For the specific project, uh, for the deception project, we had about 20 companies that responded. There were about 10 that we knew about before we opened up the solicitation. Since that time period, we've actually expanded our aperture. Um, typically, what we're, we're used to in the cyber portfolio, about 20 to 30. Recently, over the past few months, we've gotten between 40 and 60. So the word is out there that, that DIU is soliciting for, for best-of-breed commercial products. Our, our connections are, are growing, our interactions and our, our repeat customers are growing as well. So we're getting a lot more interest from the commercial market wanting to do business with the, with the government. And I don't have the data to support whether or not that's because we have more successes that, that, have, that are leading to, to that and more vendors wanting to work with the DOD or just because our name is getting out there at this point and we're trying to meet the demand with more vendor demand. So anywhere between 20 to 60 these days, it really depends on how well we've scoped the problem. It really depends on what subset of cybersecurity industry we're looking at. If you're really going after a specific technology set or a specific subcategory of the industry, you, you're, you're going to get less, less respondents. But if you're looking at something as wide as detection and response or, or threat intelligence, you're going to get a lot of vendors coming in and, and participating. That's really a great trend to see the numbers going up 20 to 30, 40 to 60. It means you're right, your marketing, your research, your marketing is doing well, but it also means people are saying when they see that OTA or see that opportunity come out, they're saying, that's worthwhile. That's, there's money behind it. There's interest behind it. On this one specifically, you had about 20 companies responded. How many words did you make? And, and can you walk me through maybe just some of the technologies that you decided to, to test out? Because OTAs technically are prototypes. From those 20 that initially responded. So if you go to our website, diu.mil and check out our CSO process, the commercial solutions opening. So you'll, you'll see that we, we initially review paper documents. What we, what we ask for up front is a five to 10 slide uh, marketing deck or a five page white paper. And that's usually something that the vendors already have created. We're not looking for them to, to do any custom development for the purposes of responding to our solicitation. We want the barrier of entry to be pretty low. So from there, what we, what we do is we review those first, then we'll invite some of them back. So in this specific project for deception, we invited back six of the, of the vendors. Uh, we, at that point, we have in-person pitches and in-person conversations. So it's really an opportunity to have a conversation with the vendor and the, the problem owner. So we had the, the military cyber operators in the room with us. And, and we talk not just about the technology and how it will be deployed and how long will, be to, will it take to deploy, but what level of skill set is needed to operate it. How is the company doing? Are they profitable? Or do they have other government and customers? Do they have other commercial customers? Are they referenceable? It's supposed to be more of a, a commercially friendly process that still falls within the line of some of the government competition rules. And so when you look at the OTA and you look at the CSO, what, what we did is we took out all of the rules of defense finance and acquisition, and we only follow the laws. So because of that, when you look at that process, yeah, you, you get to the point where you can be a lot more commercially friendly and be a lot more, more 
open towards the way that business is actually done in these ecosystems, rather than looking at requirements documents or RFIs or throwing, throwing things over the fence and waiting for a vendor to respond, you can have open and honest conversations. So from there, we went with two vendors. Um, they, they both had very specific problem sets. One did more of an enterprise detect and response, similar to what we see in the commercial side, but the one that we saw pretty good results with was on the on the cyber threat intelligence gathering, as well as uh, the threat hunting side. So, so toy, talking what I talked about earlier, like looking at the interaction, gathering telemetry from those interactions, gathering intelligence and, and tools, techniques and procedures from an adversary that is interacting with these decoys. And it had much more of a, a military flavor to the, to the operation. So those six came down to two, and then you guys basically made awards under the OTA, OTA to those two. What's the now longish term plan test them out? Uh, how long is this test going to be? How are you testing them out? I know a lot of this can be uh, sensitive. So talk to me, as, as, uh, tell me as much as you can, obviously. Typically, so when we get to the end of that down selection process, we award a contract for a, a prototype period of performance. Uh, so this is a way to, to not just get the vendor's tools installed into the operator environment and to be able to use them, but we also get to pay the vendor for this time. So it's a, it's, duly beneficial to both the vendor and the operator for this prototype period. And from there, what we do is we evaluate the process and try to make sure that there is military utility in their commercial product. For this specific project, we're, we're approaching the end of that period of performance right now. So we're at the point now where we're, we're about to declare success that this ha does have military utility, and we're about to start to go through the process of transitioning to a production other transaction agreement, which is a longer term, larger scale higher dollar amounts and higher user count instance of this capability beyond a prototyping and evaluation period. Obviously good news. It's nice when things succeed. Is, are you doing this for both of the finalists or just one of them? So right now we're working the process for both of the finalists. They both have very different use cases uh, just because of the way that we, we went ahead and used that, but we'll see what comes out on the other end of the, of the process. Patrick, on that note, let's take a quick break. My guest today is Patrick Gould, the Deputy Director of the Cyber Portfolio at the Defense Innovation Unit in the Department of Defense. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Patrick Gould, the Deputy Director of the Cyber Portfolio at the Defense Innovation Unit in the Department of Defense. Are you able to tell me a little bit about the technologies that you're using, even at a high level? What did each of the finalists provide. Can you give me any sense without kind of spilling the beans of, of what you guys are actually doing? In a nutshell, what it boils down to is the technology is being used to deploy within a cyber operations defended asset list. So if you look at what essentially your, your crown jewels on the, the defense networks and the defense weapon system. So the things that Cybercom and the service cyber components most want to defend from malicious cyber activities. We're deploying deceptive elements around them to then essentially create pre-filtered sensors and pre-filtered data gathering capabilities and data gathering devices for the purposes of the defenders of those systems. Now, if they see interactions with these decoys, they can assume that any, that any of that interaction and any of that telemetry and indicator data that's created on those devices is assumed bad because no one should be interacting with these devices because no one should know that they're there. So from there, yeah, so the thought process is you can, you can move these devices and move these fake devices around to different protected enclaves. You can move these around to different weapon systems 
or you could leave them in place. So there's, there's a few different ways that we're using them and it, it all comes down to the teams that are using them. And each team type that is using this technology is using it in a slightly different way. That's helpful. I appreciate it. I know there's some sensitivities that are built into this. Yes. So there's only so much you can say. How big of a change is this? How would you rate this on the scale of you know one to 10? Do you get a sense that this is a big step forward, a small step forward, but important? How would you characterize it? I'd say it's a big step forward. So there's a, there's a lot of detection and response tools that are out there, and the government has a lot of those at their disposal. What we haven't had until this prototype is the ability to to deploy these, these highly tailored and highly targeted uh, decoys and endpoints that fit into these very specific environments for the purposes of information gathering. So we had very good tools to do this across a, you know, the Dodin or the information network that the DoD operates on or one of the service networks. But now we have the ability to, to deploy these fake devices that already pre-filter traffic and indicator data for you in these very specific environments using the indicators and the characteristics of that environment, rather than just doing it generically across an entire swath of the network uh, portion or the entire network itself. All right, that's good to know because I think this is a problem that I think it's not just a DoD problem. I think you could argue this is a government-wide problem. This is any organizational problem because of the challenges and because of the concerns about espionage and other things. Is this the type of thing where DIU then could share the results of, the, of this OTA, of this project with other agencies, whether it's the Homeland Security Department or Justice or pick, pick your agency? Yes. So, so specifically within DOD, yeah, this is, this is great because now we're able to, to create tailored response plans for the types of adversaries that are interacting with these devices. And like to your point, that helps us then share across agencies. And I think you're, you're touching on something that we recently stood up, which is our, our, our formal partnership with DHS CISA. Um, and I, th- I think we're, I think we can talk about that a little bit later here. We can talk about it now if you like. I think yeah, that's it's a go. great partnership because I think it's an important piece as you all are going down this path. You signed the MOU, I think, late in 2020. What did it say? Give me some background. The gist of the partnership between us and DHS CISA was, so DOD already had the capability at DIU to be able to get after commercial technology using, using the OTAs and using our CSO process to leverage those OTAs. DHS CISA was doing a lot of the same things. They were looking at best of breed commercial technologies. And really, we realized that there's a lot of overlaps in, in the effect, the, the final effect we're trying to have, which is getting the best technologies in front of the best cyber operators in the name of national security. Uh, so so there, was some, there was some folks on our end and some folks on their end that just wanted to break down the administrative barriers that were in the way, whether they were contractual barriers, acquisition barriers, sustainment barriers, or just the fact that we are different agencies and departments. And, and so we, we, we signed this agreement so that we can get around those and work together. We have our, our formal DHS CISA embed uh, has arrived at DIU in remotely due to COVID. They were supposed to come in person, but, but we're, all, we're all living with the ramifications of, of remote work at this point. But he's here. He's, he's, he's going to be here for about a year. Um, he's trying to learn the process. We're actually also able to share money. So they're going to send some, some funds to us to run some DHS-specific projects as part of that MOU. And then we're also going to send some of, some of our current projects to transition to them on the back end. So we're, there's a lot of dual benefit here. And, and again, we're all fighting towards the same goal, which is national security and, and ramifications in cyberspace. And a lot of us at the practitioner level, the operational level below, don't really care you know, what rules are in place to to hold us back from that. We, act, we just want to get after the adversary and we want to, you know, we want to protect the American critical infrastructure. 
the person from CISA who's coming to, to spend time, what will they do? Is It's more than just watching and learning. It, how will they participate? And then how are they going to act as, if you will, a conduit back to CISA? They're actually going to be a formal member of our team. So the role that a, that a product or program manager at DIU would do is that's the role that this individual is going to fill. So they're going to, they're going to sit at DIU. They're going to work full-time at DIU. They're going to share best practices back for the purposes of, of their day job. But really while they're here, they're, they're working as a DIU PM to, to scope problems, to scope solutions, to do the market research, to make those connections with industry, to learn some of the, the DOD front office mechanics and strategies and policies that best help us get after these problem sets. So yeah, so think of them while they're here as a full-time DIU employee with a, a connection back to DHS. And then when, when that year is up, they'll go back to DHS and they're going to help them stand up a, a, a dual capability that looks a lot like the way that we, that we do down selections and we interact with, with industry. That was actually going to be my next question, whether or not this is a precursor to DHS setting up or CISA setting up something very similar to DIU. I know that DHS has a West Coast, you know, S&T Science and Technology office, and they've had one for several years, but that's a little different than CISA having one. Do you know, again, I know you can't speak for CISA, but do you get a sense that that's their long term is to set up something very similar to DIU? Like I said, I can't, I can't speak for CISA. I can't speak for DHS. I do know that I, d- I know the terms of this one year, which is a lot of data sharing and a lot of work sharing. And now that we have the ability to share funds as well for specific projects, yeah, we're just hoping to, to build some successes through that year and we'll, we'll see what comes out of that. We're, we're excited either way. Previously, did you all have some sort of informal relationship with CISA? Was, was sharing possible, but just harder? And, and this MOU kind of removes any existing barriers that may have popped up? A lot of our folks came from the practitioner level of the cyber operations community. So they, they had informal relationships between other agencies, whether it was the intelligence community or, or the NSA or Cybercom or DHS or FBI or other law enforcement agencies. So, so that was there, but this is, this is a real big step and we're really excited for this one because it does formalize it at more of the, the operational and strategic level. And like I said, like with that comes, comes a, formal, a formal person and embed in our organization, as well as some funding to help support some of the projects, as well as now we can we can formally share the problem areas that we're working on. So we're not uh, doubling efforts potentially and going after some of the same vendors. That's that's really important to us as well. We want to we want to save money. We want to make the process more streamlined. And if we are interacting with the same vendors, we don't want them to feel that they're you know interacting with three different government agencies and and. Maybe, maybe none of them are, are, are leading to the same goal. But now if uh, we're all leading toward the same goal, which is to get their product in front of the right people uh, to use on operations. Do you know a little bit about how the background is? Was this something that CISA came to DIU? Did DIU go to CISA? Were you all sitting around one day when we could see each other having coffee and go, hey, we should do that? Do you remember how that kind of, how the MOU came to be? I, I actually don't remember the very beginning of it, but I, I, I do know that it was just a bunch of like-minded people between the two organizations. And once we got the right decision makers in the, on, the, on the Zoom call with each other, magic happened. And before we knew it, we had a, we had a person identified and we had them coming out here and, and we had the formal agreement scoped as to you know, how we're, we're both going to get benefit out of this. Patrick, on that note, let's take a quick break. My guest today is Patrick Gould, the Deputy Director of the Cyber Portfolio at the Defense Innovation Unit in the Department of Defense. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. 
My guest today is Patrick Gould, the Deputy Director of the Cyber Portfolio at the Defense Innovation Unit in the Department of Defense. I want to shift gears a little bit and talk a little bit about more broadly the work that DIO is doing of bringing in civilians from industry into DOD for a year. This is a newer program. We've seen this industry government sharing of people before, but it's it hasn't worked as well. How is DIU going about it and, and how's it going to work? Give me some background. Yeah, so we have a few formal and informal programs. So, so first of all, D, DIU hires civilian employees. So we have we have a great mix of, of military and that's across the active duty, reserve, guard, um, all the different components, all the different services. And then on the civilian side, we have contractors, we have civilians, some of them have military backgrounds, some of them have government backgrounds, some of them have none of the above. Um, and DIU is their first experience working with government. So having that mix and bringing in those folks and those different backgrounds really allows us to, to create diverse teams and diverse thought processes and, and actually leverage a lot of the connections that come with, with their experiences and their backgrounds. But more formally, yeah, recently, so we, we talked about the, the DHS CISA agreement, but now we also have this, we're leveraging the SciTEP program, which is the uh, Cyber and Information Technology Exchange Program. It's a DOD CIO program that allows for industry experts to take a sabbatical and come work for be formally placed through the DOD CIO into a into an IT or cybersecurity role. So we took advantage of that program this year and we actually have our our, our first representative from this program at DIU Mountain View for this fiscal year. And we've had nothing but success from him. So he came from FireEye. Uh, he brings a wealth of experience from, from prior military uh, cyber intelligence work, but also from, from industry cyber intelligence work at, at FireEye. And um, having him on our team up to this point has been nothing but monumental to get that different perspective and really try to, to educate the folks like me who come from traditional military backgrounds, as well as the other members of the team. And bringing that, that different perspective um, helps us be a more well-rounded team and, and, and really empathize with, with vendors as well as the operators so that we're, again, we're providing that, that dual benefit to, to both entities in the long run. What's the one thing you would offer that you've learned from him? And what's the one thing you've had to teach him? Because when someone comes to government, the learning curve can be pretty steep sometimes. Luckily, uh, with this individual, like he, he came with a, so he's a, he's a current reservist in the army. So he, he understands a lot of the government process. He's read into all of the, the government programs when it comes to cyber threat intelligence and cyber operations. He's a super high-speed individual, very motivated, very happy to be here. And, and honestly, like I, I would say I, I probably learned more from him than he learns from me. Um, and I know that's a selfish way to look at it, but it's great having him around. It's great to be able to take advantage of this program to get such, such motivated people into an organization like DIU, but really into the DOD proper in general. Um, I think they would be just as beneficial if it was at DIU or any other um, cyber IT entity across the DOD. Has there been an example yet? I know it's still relatively recent that he joined, but have you had an example yet where you went to do something and he offered, hey, in industry, we kind of do it a little differently or, hey, think about it from this perspective. This is the way we've done it in the past. Anything that you could point to? Yeah, the timelines. So, so we, we think that our timelines at DIU are aggressive because we look at them from a perspective of DOD. Uh, but he brings his industry timelines and they're even more aggressive. So he motivates us to go even faster when it comes to awards and, and steps of the acquisition process and lowering the barrier of entry for vendors. So he, he brings a very vendor-centric 
flair to our operation and to our process. And he's really helped us improve that process for, for all those things from, from not- notifications to open and honest dialogue and to really just getting after a product in the hands of operators at a faster speed than we thought was ever possible. You mentioned speed, and that's another good point that I want to talk a little bit about. Generally speaking, one of the things you're, you're trying to do is improve the time, the acquisition time of cyber technologies. Walk me through some of the steps you've taken to reduce that challenge faced by the DoD cyber workforce to get those capabilities in the hands of operators more quickly. A lot of the work there really comes before we open a solicitation. So there's a there's a big part of the DIU process that, that the public doesn't see when it comes to that market research and the interactions with vendors and interactions with industry leaders in the, in the problems that we're trying to solve. So it really comes down to how quickly can we identify the, the power players in that specific problem area and create a relationship with them before we go live so that we at least know what's out there. We know what's in the realm of possible so that we're not asking for one step too far for a DOD problem, but we're asking far enough that we're creating that that desired 10x difference when it comes to capability improvement across the cyber force. Give me an example, if you can, of where this played, this happened. I mean, maybe with this threat intelligence OTA that we talked about earlier, or was there, was there another example you'd point to? So if we talk about the, the deception project from earlier, um, so that specific project, there was a lot of, there were a few very fortunate events where where the, the solicitation happened to align with an industry conference. So we were able to make some connections during the industry conference uh, to learn the market. Um, then when we went live, uh, we had a very motivated customer on the DOD side and operations team. We had very, very motivated vendors uh, across all the vendors that were soliciting and, and responding to our solicitation. Um, and we were actually able to award within 42 days from the time that we posted on our website uh, to the time that we had wet ink on a contract and the, and the vendor was delivering products to those operations teams. So that's one of the ones that we're very proud about because of that short timeline. Um, we, we always say that we shoot for 60 to 90 days at DIU, and I'm, I'm happy to say that we, we shattered that, that uh, timeline and are proud to, to talk about those numbers. 42 days. That's almost like industry. <laughs> that's, that's, you know, just over a month and, and a little bit more. I mean, it takes that long to, for the lawyers just to say yes. Right. I mean, that, that's the big difference here. So, so congratulations on that. Patrick, we've talked a lot about very specific projects. We've talked about the acquisition side. Let's just look forward a little bit. 2021. What are the other projects you're focused on? What are the other OTAs that people should expect? Give me a sense of other things in your cyber portfolio. It's been a very busy spring for DIU Cyber Portfolio. We have some of the, the new members that you talked about through these new partnerships and through these commercial companies or these commercial um, uh, agreements. We have some new teammates coming in from formal military assignments as well as new hires. Uh, so we're actually able to take on a lot more projects. Specifically, technology areas wise, we're looking to, to help with the hunt forward kits for the US CyberCon community. We're looking at some new ways to gather uh, non-traditional telemetry types when it comes to cyber threat intelligence gathering. So, so not your tra- traditional IOC-based indicators, but, but other forms of data that can be used to create a cyber picture of an adversary. Uh, we're looking into some ICS, some industrial control system and operational technology areas for some of the services and how do we help them protect more of their power and embedded systems across the different services. We're doing more cloud and remote-based projects. So so given the COVID situation, that's created a new demand across the DoD for more 
remote-based protections and your own device and zero trust type type projects. We actually stood up a sub team within our team for telecommunications. So we're looking into more wireless spectrum and, and 5G and wireless intrusion detection set, uh, system type projects. I'm sure I'm forgetting a few, but yeah, we, we, we have a lot going on right now, way more than we have over the past few years. And that's, that's enabled by the demand from the DOD side, as well as from the, the new team members that we brought on board to be able to actually receive and execute on that demand. So we're, it's, a, it's a really exciting time to be at DIU. And I'll try to get ahead of all the vendor questions you're now going to get from <laughs> talking through this. What are some of the timelines I should look out for? Do you expect OTAs to start coming or, or, or some CSOs to coming in the spring, in the fall, what, what, what should, when should people look out for some of those, these opportunities? Some of these have already been posted. So typically what we do is if when we have an open solicitation, it's available on diu.mil and it's under the work with us or current solicitation section of our website. So it's a, it's a fairly easy to follow section that will align all, it will outline all of the open solicitations and it, there's a one click button to respond to fill to then fill out a form. It takes you to a, a separate page to then fill out what your technology area is, who you are as a company, um, and then we'll, we can get in touch that way. We're actively doing market research. So, so don't be surprised if some of our market analysts and some of our commercial engagement teams reach out in some of these specific technology areas. And that's, and then there always is the, you know, the, the new projects as well. So given that we are mostly demand driven, uh, we never know when the next problem will come in. We have enough in the pipeline right now to keep us busy over the next few months, but ones are coming in daily. So, so they'll, they'll continue to be posted. They'll continue to be targeted over the next uh, year here. One big concern I hear about OTAs quite often is, are you really attracting quote unquote non-traditional federal contractors or non-traditional companies who maybe haven't done federal contracting before. And when you look at some of the data, the OTAs, generally speaking, you see, okay, who's won the most OTAs and beyond the consortiums. If you dig underneath, you do see a lot of traditional contractors. Are you finding that you are, you know, of those 20 to 60 bids that you do get or proposals that you do get, is there a strong majority that are people that have done one project before or no projects before for DOD? Or do you see, you know, a lot of the same old, same old, and, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. We don't view that as a bad thing. Like open competition is good for us. So we, we don't do consortium-based OTAs. So we're open and, and fair competition for anyone that wants to respond. Um, if you look at the deception project we talked about earlier, the, the big performer here that we're, that we're going forward with on the, the, product, or the prototype OTA, um, so they, they have zero previous work with the United States government, zero previous work with the DOD, and they are a, they're a small, a small business startup company. So we're proud to bring in companies like that. And we've traditionally seen that across most of the projects that we've done, uh, especially on the cyber portfolio. It's more exciting for us to be able to see some of these smaller companies and these companies that have a technology that typically wouldn't work with the DoD. And we're honored to kind of bring them in and, and show them the process and show them that working with the DoD can be uh, more enjoyable than they've heard from some of their peers or friends or connections. Um, and and that, that's one of the reasons that, that motivates us to do what we do and to, and to be excited to work at a place like DIU. Patrick, this has been a great conversation. Just to kind of bring this back to the front end of the conversation, there are a lot of vendors who are interested in submitting these responses. From your perspective, what should they know about DIU and, and, the, and your process? We're happy at DIU to be the, the face of the DOD to the commercial industry in the areas that we are in, like I talked about in Silicon Valley, Austin, Boston, and DC. 
we want to make the DOD a, a, a good customer overall. We want to lower those barriers of entry when it comes to doing solving hard problems for national security, but we also want to be able to present some of those hard problems to industry to help us solve. Um, there should be no, no monopoly on who's allowed to solve hard problems for national security, and we want to get after the best and brightest throughout this, this country and really the world to help us try to solve those things. And we hope that our process is doing that. Uh, we've seen great results up to this point. Uh, and we hope to continue that throughout 2021 and, and 2022. Patrick, this has been a great conversation. So let me thank my guest. Patrick Gould is the Deputy Director of the Cyber Portfolio at the Defense Innovation Unit. Patrick, thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks again, Jason. It was a pleasure talking with you today. We have to take a break. I'm Jason Miller. When we come back from break, we shift gears for this fourth segment of the show and talk about IPv6 and the 15-plus year effort to modernize agency networks. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. For this part of the show, we shift gears a bit to talk about IPv6. The General Services Administration hosted a half-day event in June focusing on the new deadline set by the Office of Management and Budget. In November, OMB issued a memo requiring agencies to move at least 80% of their network assets to IPv6 by 2025. The first deadline is coming up this month. Agencies have to issue an agency-wide IPv6 policy. For how the Defense Department is doing, we hear from Colonel Romel Jaramillo, the IPv6 lead for DOD. We're working to meet the milestones, uh, especially this fiscal year. We've met some already, and we'll continue to strive to meet the remaining milestones after this fiscal year. So, But having the governance structure, policy, and the implementation plan by the end of this fiscal year will help set us up to uh, meet all the milestones that's uh, the OMB memo. Uh, ask us to do. The OMB director signed the third IPv6 OMB memo since the turn of the century on uh, 19 November 2020. On the next three slides, I'll go over the new memos, milestones, and the DOD's current status and way ahead. I, I won't read the actual milestones. I think some of you guys uh, remember it by heart, uh, but it's up there just in case for folks that uh, don't look at it on a daily basis or weekly basis. The agency-wide team governance structure is complete. In DOD with the IPv6 working group, which I chair, uh, reporting to the Digital Modernization Infrastructure uh, Executive Command, uh, and supported by um, the IPv6 virtual PMO, which has IPTs represented by personnel from DISA and other components. The agency-wide policy is in draft and currently is in review um, uh, right before it goes up to the Deputy Secretary of Defense. Uh, we're anticipating approval as early as the end of June. We're working to identify more pilots and now have an IPv6 only pilot in the development at this time. We will be completing uh, an IPv6 implementation plan by the end of the fiscal year. Uh, we will update the IRM to include the goals noted on this slide in the next iteration of the DOD digital modernization strategy. OMB does allow for exemptions for national security systems, so these targeted goals can be met with this caveat. IPv6 working group members from the components will continue work with their respective partners and take the next step to try to meet the top milestone. And then for the last milestone, components are still continuing to work, uh, which includes a task from the 2010 OMB IPv6 memo, uh, efforts to meet the DOD CIO uh, February 2019 implementation direction and guidance memo and the IPv6 strategy that was signed in November of 2019 uh, by the DOD CIO. CIO will enable DOD to meet these tasks and this last milestone. 
I'll go over the DOD CIO implementation direction and guidance memo. Uh, this was the policy that we were working with uh, before. The, well, we're still working with it at this time. DTM, the uh, new policy that we're working on that we're hoping to be completed by the end of June uh, will take us to the next step. But this implementation direction and guidance memo has resulted in a strategy, a DOD cybersecurity analysis report, stand-up of the virtual PMO and component-supported IPTs, IPv6 language in the components planning guidance, and some future funding via the components program objective memorandums, and two DOD IPv6 workshops, which developed concepts for at least two pilots. DOD held their second annual workshop in 2020 from 17 to 19 November uh, 2020, and it culminated with the timely good news that the OMV memo was signed on the last day of the workshop, uh, helping to make the workshop even more memorable. Carol Bales uh, called in with the breaking, breaking news at that, uh, during the workshop for that. The DOD IPv6 workshop 2020 was done via Microsoft Teams. Uh, in 2019, it was hybrid with the majority in person, but folks in AFRICOM, UCOM, and Indopaycom, um, some of them participating remotely. Uh, the workshop received plenty of support from the Fed IPv6 task force and the IPv6 community to include some speaking today like Carol Bales, Ron Butra, Doug Montgomery, and Ralph Wallace. Attendance increased from the prior year and expected to do likewise for the next DOD IPv6 workshop uh, later this year. So if there are any of today's speakers to include Dr. Cerf interested in being part of the next workshop, please, please feel free to reach out to me or any of my team, but definitely to me. Now uh, I'll be talking about the limited deployments that DOD has done at this point for IPv6. The DRAM pilot is well known. And if Ron or other DRAM engineers are attending the summit, they can definitely provide more on what they have done in this century. Other department highlights include the IPv6 enablement of the, the Defense Information Systems Network core backbone. Uh, the GROOT has been um, enabled to go native. Internet access points are also now enabled to support IPv6. And then the latest effort is the Defense Logistics Agency's limited deployment expansion. The LDE was supported by DLA cybersecurity service provider as well as NSA. And the overall effort was supported by various DOD entities that are part of the IPTs. The DLA LDE showed that tools and personnel can track IPv6. Uh, and finally, we're still currently supporting a STRATCOM uh, limited deployment expansion and helping various components that are looking um, uh, to do potential other uh, pilots or expansion. The next steps for DOD, uh, we got to complete the policy uh, to meet the milestone, uh, continue uh, the work from the 2019 memo, develop and complete the implementation plan, the components implementation plan, Established dual stack as default provided service by DISA. Again, we know the end game is uh, IPv6 only, uh, but we, we've got to start providing services, IPv6 services. Uh, continue to identify and conduct LDEs to help pave the way to implement IPv6 and to conduct IPv6 only pilots and begin actual in-depth planning to transition to IPv6 only. And that includes uh, the current DOD transition story. During all that, that was great. Um, I know our keynote speaker is here, so uh, I, I do have a number of questions. We can bring down the slides 
Thank you, Alexis. Um, one thing is, is are you seeing out of your pilots, um, are, are, are you seeing um, additional cybersecurity information that has been benefiting your understanding of the risks in the transition? Some of the technical results, or at least uh, what we're seeing is that our uh, uh, you know, CSSPs and our tools are seeing IPv6. Um, the concern previously was uh, we were not ready um, to support IPv6. I think uh, the pilot, the uh, DLA pilot is helping uh, answer those concerns. Uh, we're waiting on feedback on uh, how leadership has seen the results. We've handed it over to them. So we may have more news by the end of the fiscal year. That's all the time we have for today. You just heard from Colonel Romel Jeromello, the IPv6 lead for DOD. He was speaking at the recent IPv6 event held by GSA about OMB's November 2020 memo. I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Tune in Thursday mornings at 10 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. 